of God brings heaven to earth. It leaves culture upturned and the kingdom upright. The kingdom is pure and holy. It is blessed and set apart. It is righteous beyond all understanding. It is generous beyond earning. Our God's kingdom is good news. His kingdom is saving grace. It rattles our reality and shakes us awake. And it pours out of us as salt and as light. It brings perspective that changes the way we think. It brings vision that changes the way we see. It brings growth that changes who we are. It brings surrender that changes how we live. The kingdom is kindness that doesn't feel fake. And the kingdom is patience that doesn't make sense. It is forgiveness when it doesn't seem possible. It is for the poor in spirit, the lowly, and the persecuted. The kingdom is his, his kingdom is ours, and the kingdom of God is here. Today, I want to begin not with a story and not with a joke. I want to begin with a picture. Perhaps you've seen this picture. It's a picture of a New York City police officer and a protester taken back in June uh, during a peaceful protest in New York City. It captured a moment when a black woman, a protester, crosses the line literally and figuratively to embrace and engage with a white police officer. Now, why does this picture capture our attention? Uh, likely because it's outside of what we expect these days. It's jarringly different than what we hear about as the lead story in the news or what we read in our social media news feeds. You see, divisiveness has become so normal that a picture like this is oddly abnormal. I mean, just live with that for a minute. Our society, our culture has become so accustomed with being divided as its natural state that that's become our new default. Well, as my friend Pastor Kip would say, God has a lot to say about that. And if you get anything from today's message, get this. Church, we are called to love, and that includes our enemies. Now, before I dive in, I feel like I have to mention just a couple of things. Number one. This message will have examples that may make you feel uneasy. That's okay. That's called conviction. So hang on with me. Number two, this message is not politically biased. Uh, this message is far bigger, and Jesus is far greater than your political party affiliation. So hang in there with me. Number three, this message is not meant to make you feel guilty, but actually the opposite, to encourage you in your everyday faith as you work out your faith. And number four, this message is for you and very much for me as well. I don't have a medal on my shelf for having mastered this command. I'm a work in progress like you. And so please hear everything I share in this teaching for us. Be open to what God might have for you today. As we continue in our series, Kingdom Culture, we find ourselves with Jesus addressing love, but more specifically, a love for our enemies. And before he jumps into the why or the how, Jesus calls out the elephant in the room. In Matthew's account, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He is acknowledging right up front what has become the accepted norm 
or the default. As if to say, I get it. I understand. You've heard this is acceptable. You, you think your enemies deserve it, that you're justified. It's fair and so on and so forth. And in Jesus' style, he meets people right where they are. But also in Jesus' style, he loves them too much to leave them there. And so Jesus continues with a very stark contrast, a biblical but. He says this, but I, Jesus, tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what you've heard but this is what I'm telling you. I can only imagine the collective gasp on the hillside when Jesus dropped this truth bomb. What began as what you've heard takes a hard right to what I'm saying, and I'm sure we've all had that experience before. Parents, I'm sure you can especially relate. This is Otter Pond. It's next to our neighborhood. It's operated and maintained by our homeowners association, and access to the pond, enjoyment of the pond, comes with just a couple of rules. One of those rules is this, no jumping or diving from the deck or the railing. This is constantly debated on our neighborhood Facebook page, and this rule is constantly broken every summer at the pond. This past summer, I overheard a conversation between a mom and her son, and it went something like this. Mom, can I just jump one time? The mom said, no. The son said, why not? She said, because there's a rule against jumping from the railing. He said, I know, but just once? She says, no. Well, I, I heard it was okay, especially if just one person did it at a time. She said, I understand that's what you've heard, but I am telling you no. You see, here Jesus is acknowledging what they've heard, but follows up with what he's calling them to, a love for their enemies. Jesus' alternative to getting even is one of the most difficult teachings of Jesus, both to understand and more so to apply. Jesus jumps headfirst into the reality that to love our enemies is both counterintuitive and counterculture. You see, it's counterintuitive because it forces us to think completely opposite of how we would naturally think. It's counterculture because it forces us to act completely opposite of how we would naturally act. You see, loving our enemies goes against our natural state. It's easy to love those we love. It's possible to love those we like. It could be a push, but we could love those we tolerate. But to love those we hate to love our enemies, and that's exactly what Jesus, in this portion of his sermon, is commanding. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, here's the what. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, let's pause for a brief moment for just a bit of contextual background. Ministry Magazine provides a great, concise summary of the moments before. During the time of Jesus, some sectors of Judaism held an animosity against people they didn't like, such as Samaritans, Romans, and Gentiles. They go on to say, such an animosity created a relational rule of law, that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus would correct this and remind them of the law that said to love your neighbor, and he reiterated that in his new command to love one another. You know what's really interesting? You will not find anywhere in the Bible to hate your enemy. Scour your Bible. You won't find it. 
The command can't be found in Scripture. So why would Jesus reference it? You see, some then, some there thought that if you loved your neighbor, then the opposite of that would naturally be to not love anyone that was not in neighbor status, enemies included. But Jesus did more than clarify this. He took the command of love your neighbor to a brand new level. He would say this, but to you who are listening, I say, actually pause right there, That first sentence is pretty critical. Some versions might say, uh, to you who are willing to listen. Or another, I say to you who are listening. This is a key statement. Basically, Jesus recognizes he's about to share some major truth information, a big-time command, and he recognizes that in our human prideful nature, when we hear the subject content, we might be inclined to shut down not listen anymore. This statement then speaks to a willingness to obey what he's about to share. So he says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. I mean, can you imagine the reaction of the crowd as Jesus is speaking these words? Perhaps it's the same reaction you're having right now. Pray and do good to whom? Bless to what? Here's the how. The what is pray for your, love your enemies. But here's the how. We're called to flip the script. We're supposed to love our enemies. How do we do that? Well, we flip the script. In other words, we turn what's normal on its head. Jesus would do this all the time, right? He looked at his watch and said, well, it's about midday. I'm going to head to the well, and when I'm there, I'm going to talk to a woman. By the way, it's going to be a Samaritan woman. Or, you know that Zacchaeus guy, that guy that probably, uh, I don't know, cheated you out of some money? Well, he, he is going to be, the, I'm going to go to his house, and I'm going to hang out there for a little bit. Or, or this one, can you hand me a towel and a basin and slip off your sandal because I'm going to wash your feet tonight? Jesus was all about flipping the script. Commentator Joe Stoll said this, Jesus set the bar high. He tells us to rejoice when we're persecuted, to turn the other cheek, to give to someone who wants to take away, to love our enemies, to bless those that curse, and to do good to those who hate me. This kind of lifestyle seems very upside down to me. But I've come to realize that it's not he who's upside down, it's me. Jesus lovingly comes to turn each of us right side up. You see, Jesus was all about counterculture, not for shock value, but for kingdom impact, for kingdom building. So it should be no surprise that he takes something so divisive and commands to follow me means you must do this love differently. To flip the script requires you must first acknowledge where you are personally, just you, self-assessment, because it begins with you. You are salt. You are light. So first, ask yourself, with whom do you hold animosity? With whom are you an enemy? With whom do you hate? Then self-evaluate. How do you express that dislike or that hatred? And then three, most importantly, Flip the script. Resolve to flip the script, to act 
differently. Now, notice a couple things about this particular command. Number one, it's clear your actions are not dependent on others' actions. You are called to pray and love and do good for those who, frankly, aren't in your corner. That's why they're considered enemies. So you're called to to pray and love and do good for those that don't have your back. They're not necessarily your friends. The love that Jesus references here is a present imperative, a present imperative, which simply means it's continual, it's ongoing, it's a command to love and a command that can only be accomplished through a supernatural helping of the Holy Spirit. I mean, loving Praying, doing good for my enemies, not my natural response. So God intercedes. God pours love into you so that you have enough love to then pour out to others without a fear of running out of love. And so this is a serious kind of love. It's not a I love the Seahawks kind of love or I love that sweater kind of love or an even I love you to your spouse kind of love because That you're saying to someone you're in relationship with. This kind of love can only be provided by God, exampled through Jesus, and accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Because in our natural state, it's a hard love to want to give away. Notice one more thing. He says, pray for your enemies, or those that persecute you, those against you. Pray for them, not pray against them. It would really change the verse of the command, right? There's a big difference here. Praying against my enemies merely perpetuates the unresolved distance between us. But praying for my enemy, praying for the person persecuting me, that's different. Because that means I'm praying now for a person, So we're praying for, not praying against. It shifts our thinking. So whether in attitude or action or word, the enemies in our lives are called, we are called to love them. And so Jesus, as he often does, hits us with some very practical examples. Luke's account goes on. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other side also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them and give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. That sounds like a lot of fun, right? (laughs) Here Jesus is mixing the literal with the metaphorical to make a point. I mean, here, a slap on the cheek was culturally understood as a deep insult, He's not saying if you get hit on one side of the head with a baseball bat, turn so you can get hit on the other. More so, when a person insults you or slaps you on the cheek, our inclination, our response is to get back at them. A response, a retaliation. Jesus is appealing to your counterintuitive and counterculture thinking. He's asking you to flip the script so that we should bear such insult and offenses and instead trust God to defend us or to repair our heart when we've been wounded and or provide us thicker skin so we can take on those arrows that are shot at us. As for sacrificial giving, whether it's a coat, a cloak, or otherwise, this is a heart-level attitude shift. We can only practice this kind of sacrificial love with others, with our enemies, 
When we know God will take care of us, we can give away our coat and not want it back when we know there are plenty more that God has in store for us. It's in this verse we also find a very well-known directive. He says, all of this, do this, do this, do this, don't worry about this. And then he says this at the end. He says, do to others as you would have them do to you. How about that? The golden rule, it's biblical. Now, the negative way of stating this command was around long before Jesus. It had long been said, you should not do to your neighbor what you would not want your neighbor to do to you. See how it's negative? It was a significant advance then for Jesus to take this, flip the script, and make it positive. To say we should do unto others what we'd like done unto us. And again, Jesus uses his words very carefully. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It doesn't say treat others as they treat you back, but your treatment is not dependent. If they're kind to you back, great. If they're not, great. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I don't know about all of this going on, but here's what I do know. Those that I love I love well. And to that, I would say that's awesome. That is good. That's really, really, really good. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, we ought to be really careful about boasting in that love because Jesus continues here in Luke and says this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. I mean, can you hear that very gentle yet pointed directness? Don't confuse it for sarcasm. Jesus was not being sarcastic or demeaning. He was clarifying the point to those that were listening so that they would understand you love those who you love back. That's great, but that's no different than what's going on in the world. Jesus is calling his disciples and those that would follow after him to live to a different standard of behavior. You are called to higher. You are called to more. He continues. He says this. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. The cost of learning this lesson, of taking this lesson from the classroom to the practical, is the fact that it may cost you some slander, some hurt feelings, some blows to the cheek, and some stolen coats. But to learn this lesson is the essence of the gospel, right? Unmerited costly forgiveness. And then Jesus hits us with the reward, the why, the good news of what you're doing here. He says the reward is this. Then your reward will be great. I can't wait. A new car, a new house, some money. What is it going to be? And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. That's the reward. The reward for all this effort, 
It's not a car. It's not a house. It's not money. It's not trophies. It's not a certificate. Instead, we receive something way more valuable than nothing that this world could provide to you or I. A likening to our Father in heaven. What an incredible comparison. What an incredible distinction for the Christ follower. There's nothing better. Consider the ultimate win when someone sees in you the way you speak or act to an enemy, but they don't see you. They see Jesus in you. They see Jesus through you. Now, all this sounds really nice and maybe even slightly doable, but there's a force that will push against your willingness to turn the other cheek, to give up your shirt, or to give away without any expectation. That force is you. You. You will assuredly get in the way of yourself, which means you will need to fight for a love for your enemies. Let me say it again. You will need to fight for a love for your enemies. Gandhi once said this, whenever you are confronted with an opponent, conquer them with love. Whenever you are confronted or faced with an opponent, conquer them with love. Another way to say this is the well-known phrase, kill them with kindness. I mean, normally, we, the church, Christians, we don't encourage you to fight. But here, that fighting is a suggestion of action. I remember in eighth grade PE, it was time for the annual national physical fitness testing or assessment. How many push-ups can you do? How much can you bench? What's your mile time? And then there was my arch enemy, the pull-up bar. Oh, how I loathe the pull-up bar. And I remember sitting there on the day of pull-up bar day and just praying that somehow our PE teacher would skip over my name. But instead I hear, Brian, you're up. And so I stand up and walk to the pull-up bar, stand on the chair, get on the bar, and then hang there like a sloth. And then a second later I hear, go. And as my classmates sat in front of me on the gym floor, I started that first pull-up. And then I got a second, and then the realization that that's all I had in me. I distinctly remember Mr. Nielsen yelling at me, Mengel, you've got another in you. Fight for one more. I won't tell you how many more pull-ups I got, because I like to stay humble. But the point is, my mind, my body, my entire being wanted no part of any more pull-ups. So I had to fight for it. The same is true when it comes to you loving your enemies. It will require you to fight for it, to fight your habitual actions, your emotional feelings, your fear of judgment, your worry about the outcome or your, the reality of being exhausted. But Jesus is saying loving your enemies isn't really about you at all. It's not even about your so-called enemies. It's all about Jesus. I mean, notice, notice Jesus' words in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now you are to love one another. 
Notice he doesn't say you're to love your enemies. He simply says to love one another. Just imagine what would happen if our student ministries, if our small groups, if our pastors, our elders, our staff, our church, you took this on seriously. Imagine if you flipped the script, you fought for love, and that same love and devotion for those that we're in relationship with and, the, and those that the world might deem as our enemies, which brings us to the why. We're called to love our enemies. The how is flip the script, and the why is we are called to be kingdom-minded. We're called to be kingdom-minded. This life and this challenge, the challenges we've got, the squabbles, the debates, the victories, the defeats, they will all fade away at some point. Jesus is calling us to a temporal change for eternal impact. It can be argued that treating an enemy with love won't make a lick of difference. But what if it did? What if it's the exact moment God uses to bring that person to him? What if it takes just one attitude and action adjustment to force someone to pause long enough to wonder why? And ultimately to have someone who doesn't know Jesus have their eyes opened to him. I love this this poem. It says, doing good to those who hate us, Lord, it's difficult to do. Help us by your grace to love them, praying they'll turn to you. When we shift to being kingdom-minded, we free ourselves up to hit for the fences, to be willing to risk loving our enemy because what's the worst that could happen? Worst case scenario, nothing changes. Best case scenario, there's life change. And in either case, when we love our enemies, we reflect the character of God. We fulfill Jesus's commandment. When we treat both our friends and enemies with grace and kindness, we behave, we act, we uh, emulate Jesus Christ. You know, I, I would venture to guess most, if not all of you watching this weekend, didn't plan on hearing a challenge today about loving the enemies in your life. But in today's world, what an incredible opportunity for the church to lead in a way that shifts the paradigm. And that shift can begin with you and me. And it starts in your heart, in your soul, in your mind. So here are some practical first steps. Understand that to love our enemies does not mean we become instant best friends. Showing your enemies genuine respect that every human deserves is really a first step. Treating them with compassion, meeting them where they are, visualizing them as a fellow creation of God. Make every effort to come to know and understand your enemy better. Walk a mile in their shoes. Show them kindness. Pray for them. Pray for those that hurt you. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. And he did that himself. He's there. He's being uh, uh, crucified. He's praying for those that had it out for him. You can have, it's hard to, to hate someone that you're praying for. Consider your reaction toward your enemies. 
Proverbs 24, 17 says this, do not gloat when your enemy falls or when they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Read it one more time. Do not gloat when your enemy falls, when they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Now, just practically, Wazoo fans, Cougs, it means you have got to find a way to love these guys. And, and, and Seahawks fans, it means you've got to find a way to love these guys. And on a completely serious note, as we approach the election next week, Pastor Kip's message last week could not be more timely. And for some of us, for many of us, the political climate, the election season, there's enemies all over the place. The political climate this year is thick with hate and division. I love what Pastor Kip said last week. We have lost our ability for civility. How tragically sad. I can't imagine a better time for this reminder then as well, to love our enemies well. This campaign season has been especially ugly. Both sides of the aisle making a practice of villainizing the other. And like Hollywood, hoping we eventually see one candidate as the enemy and to get them out or in office. In fact, I heard an ad this week. It turned my stomach. I wrote it down so I could have every word of it. It said, if you think he's on your side, he's not. He's not for you or your family or your best interests. He's an enemy and your vote will help defeat him. Can you imagine a world where Jesus would ever approve that message? Politics aren't bad. It's when politics get personal that we Christians can get into trouble. So let me just say this. I'm going to tread lightly but boldly. Let me say this. If you're liberal, liberal-minded, Jesus is calling for you to find a way to love these guys. And if you are, are conservative, you're Republican, vice versa, Jesus is calling for you to find a way to love these guys. I'm not joking. Let me be crystal clear. I'm not saying one party or one candidate is right or wrong. I'm not advocating that one viewpoint or value of a candidate or party is right or wrong. But at the end of the day, politicians are people, people that were fearfully and wonderfully made by our shared creator. Church, let's not perpetuate the storyline that politicians are our enemies. If we're going to fight about politics, let's fight for a love for politicians. You never thought you'd hear that in church, right? <laughs> Let's share in a fight for a love of politicians, a love for people who differ from us politically. Let's pray for their families. Let's pray for their faith. Let's pray, pray for their relationship with God. You know, I don't know the political leanings of each of our nine pastors, but I do know that every week we are praying for our elected officials, from our Republican president to our Democratic governor. You see, love supersedes politics. Our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, would say this, I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. Dr. Martin Luther King, as he spoke about those he differed with, 
those he considered opponents or enemies would say this, love is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. Love is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. Let's keep that in mind in this final week before the election is over. In your interactions with people in person, on social media, in the driveway as you're talking to your neighbor. This is a picture of Ava Kaur. At the age of 10, Ava and her twin sister Miriam were taken to Auschwitz where they were used for medical experiments for over nine months. When they arrived there at the concentration camp, their parents were ripped away, their two older sisters as well. They were both killed in gas chambers. Following Miriam's death, her sister, Ava would make international headlines when she would flip the script. In 1994, Ava connected with a former Nazi doctor to sign a reconciliation document at the concentration camp where she received over 1,000 experiments conducted on her and her sister. Then in 2015, she'd do it again. She would meet this gentleman, a former Nazi bookkeeper who was on trial for more than 300,000 counts of accessory to murder at the concentration camp where Ava nearly died. On both accounts, Ava was met with confusion and much backlash. One person wrote to her and said, how can you befriend the very enemies that had part in murdering your family? Ava quickly shut down her naysayers saying this, why survive at all if all you want to do is be sad, angry, and hurting? I don't understand why the world is so much more willing to accept lashing out in anger rather than embracing friendship and humanity. Let's be clear. Ava was not looking, overlooking the horrendous treatment she endured or the despicable actions by this Nazi doctor and bookkeeper that she would meet years later. Culture would agree she would have been easily justified to hate both of these men. But what we see is Ava takes a page right out of Jesus' playbook. She may have hated their actions, but she chose to love her enemies. Jesus' answer is simple but profound. Replace your hatred with love. And this messes with our thinking. It hurts our brain because it's outside the norm. I mean, our culture loves a good battle. Good versus evil. The good guy wins. The bad guy gets what's coming to him. Do justice. Batman and the Joker and Harry Potter and Voldemort, Scar and Mufasa, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. There's this constant battle. There's a dependence on good versus evil, the protagonist versus the antagonist. So then, one could argue enemies are crucial to our storylines. We all need enemies, said Jesus, never so if enemies are not by a divine assignment, who is responsible? We are. We're responsible. You determine your enemies. It's you who creates a definition for you of what is an enemy, and then it's you who chooses who's on that list based on that definition. And it should be alarmingly simple when we look at it this way. 
Is that opposing football fan really my enemy? Is their team winning over my team really worth losing a friend? Is that person with an opposing political view than mine really my enemy? Is our differing viewpoints worth my not earning a space in their life? Here's another thought. The title enemy carries a lot of weight. So if we take another step back, maybe it's from that vantage point that we can assess, is this person I call an enemy an enemy or just someone I highly disagree with? I have many people I disagree with on a wide range of topics, but I would not consider them my enemies. And when we change how we think about people that we disagree with, it makes loving them that much easier. So when, when we read this in Proverbs, it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. I can do this. If my friend whom I disagree with politically or my friend who I disagree with on the best football team is at my house, we can share a meal together. I get it. It's not always going to be that easy, but it's a place to begin for sure. But our calling is to love those that oppose us. That's that's the base for all of this. To love those that challenge our thinking, to love those that question our beliefs, to love those that push our buttons, that, that test our patience, and to love those that sometimes without a reason hate us. The hard truth is this. Jesus is calling us to a hard love. God is a real-world God, and He accounts for real-world problems. We will have enemies, yet we are called to respond to them in love, trusting for God to do the rest. Because when we love our enemies, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. When we love our enemies, a watching world wonders why. When we love our enemies, we reflect the character and the nature of God and the love of Jesus. And when we love our enemies, we affirm that we love because God first loved us. So I end this message with how Jesus began. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He goes on, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Church, this is a shockingly simple command to understand, but difficult to obey. The kind of love Jesus is talking about for your enemies is not a warm and fuzzy love. One commentator I read said, if you're waiting for that kind of love, you may never get there. The love Jesus is talking about is a love for enemies that does something for them, regardless of how you may feel about them. So let's boil it down. Jesus is clear. Love your enemies. How do we do it? It's simple. Pray, do good, love, and repeat. We pray. We pray for them. We pray for their family, their career, their relationship, their choices, how they treat others, and most importantly, their relationship with Christ. We do good. When opportunity arises to do something for an enemy, do it. Take advantage of it. Go out of your way. Bless them. And then love. Love authentically. Despite their condition or their treatment of you, rise above and love with an unconditional love. And then repeat, do it again and again and again and again and again. 
Surprise the next person that hurts you. Discover that love will always win over hatred and hostility. Now, is it really that simple? Not always. Is it worth the effort to try? Absolutely. You see, to love a friend is natural. To love an enemy is Christ-like. So church, let's take on the challenge and love like Christ loves us.